If you've been a Christian for long, you probably know someone who started looking like they were running hard after Jesus, but who turned back and no longer walks with him. And that can be really disruptive to your own faith. We rely on one another in a very meaningful way as we are following Jesus together as a community of faith. And when someone close falls away, we feel the hit. Uh, Their leaving is usually escorted by their questions. Questions over God's authority, questions over the clarity and trustworthiness of His Word, questions over whether true, lasting, personal change or growth is even possible. And these questions, tumbling out of the mouth of a fellow follower of Jesus, might strike us almost like a stick in the spokes of a bike, tumbling us off into our own line of questions. Are this person's questions legit? What if I'm next? How can I know that I won't fall away too? And even if you've never considered yourself a Christian, you too might have your own set of unique questions. Maybe you have questions about particular aspects of Jesus' teaching, or maybe you have questions about the sincerity of his followers. But friends, I hope you know that Trinity Bible Church is a safe place to ask questions, but I'd like for us all to keep this in mind from our sermon text this morning, there are two ways to ask questions of Jesus, faith-seeking understanding or unbelief-seeking escape. Our sermon text this morning is structured around questions. It begins with the unbelieving Jewish leaders who are questioning Jesus. And really, their questions are focusing on two foundational aspects, two foundational concepts of Christianity. Who is Jesus, and why did he come? We might say it this way. What is Jesus' divine origin, and what is Jesus' divine mission? Who is he, and why did he come? Those are the first two questions coming from those unbelieving Jewish authorities. But then we get questions actually from his own disciples who begin to question his teaching. Who can listen to this hard saying? Some have taken offense at what Jesus is teaching, and so they leave. And so Jesus turns from his broader circle of disciples, and he turns to his closest 12 disciples, and he asks them, will you leave me too? He gets two responses. He gets a response from Simon Peter, who responds by saying, Lord, where else would we even go? You have the words of life. But among those 12 who were still following Jesus, his closest 12 disciples, there sat Judas, who was offended, who was questioning Jesus, who was planning to betray him silently in his own heart. This is a challenging and searching portion of Scripture. And my prayer in preparation for this has been that we would each listen to what God has to teach us this morning in his word by his spirit. 
I would imagine that some of us need encouragement uh, of our own assurance of faith. But there are others of us who need to have our unbelief challenged. Uh, And I cannot do that equally across the room. So we each need to be engaged, listening to what God has to teach us in this passage by His Spirit this morning. We're going to walk through the second half of John chapter 6 in three sections. First, unbelievers grumble about Jesus' divine origin. Second, unbelievers dispute Jesus' substitutionary death. And then third, we'll ask a diagnostic question of our own. Will I take offense or take comfort in Jesus' hard teaching? Let's pray. Father, we do ask again that you would give us this day our daily bread. Give us a portion of faith that we need to make it through this day. We pray that you would help us to be aware of our blind spots. Would you help us to come to you in humility, willing to be taught by you? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First, unbelievers grumble about Jesus' divine origin. We'll see this in verses 41 through 51 which were just read for us, but I will read again back into our hearing, starting in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. They died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Two things we need to keep in mind as we're walking through this portion of John 6. Really, all of John 6 is built around the concept of bread from beginning to end. And Jesus has been presented as a true and better Moses who is leading a true and better exodus of his people from bondage and slavery to an eternal home of rest. This is what's happening in John 6. Just the day before, in the passage that we covered last Sunday, Jesus had fed those 5,000 men with barley loaves, and they now have chased him down. They want to get more bread. He warned them that they were seeking the wrong thing. Uh, He emphasized that he is the Son of God, He is the Son of Man. He was sent and certified by the Father. And so they asked him to prove it. Okay, if that's true, show us a sign. Do a miracle. For instance, Moses, when he was in uh, leading our forefathers in the wilderness, gave bread from heaven. It was called manna. 
Maybe you could do something like that. How would that sound? And so Jesus responds, God sent your forefathers bread from heaven. It was great. It sustained their lives in the wilderness for a short period of time. But he has sent something better that's standing in front of you. I am the true bread of heaven. I have come from heaven to sustain your life eternally. And if you eat this bread, you will have eternal life. Now, just to be super clear, we need to understand that this whole thing is a metaphor for John's purpose in his gospel so that we might see and believe, and by believing in Jesus, we might have eternal life. This whole thing about eating the bread is a metaphor for believing in Jesus. To eat his bread is to believe in him. The Jews in this passage here, likely the Jewish authorities were listening to Jesus teaching in the synagogue there in Capernaum, and they did not like what they were hearing. And it's important to note what they're doing in verses 41 and 43 in particular. There is a key word there. They are grumbling. If you were in the Old Testament survey class, you might have heard something about this as Andy was walking through the book of Numbers just this morning with us. Their forefathers did the same thing while they were wandering in the wilderness after their redemption from Egypt. There's Numbers, chapter 14, verses 2 through 4. It says this, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land, to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now, this happens a lot during their wilderness wandering. God has redeemed them. He has provided bread for them to sustain their lives. And yet, all the way into the promised land, they have complained and they have grumbled against him. Grumble is a key word. The salvation that Yahweh provided did not immediately meet their requirements. I mean, at least back in Egypt, we had like cucumbers and melons and onions and garlic. But now all we have is this manna. All we have is this bread from heaven. How come we can't ever have just like a salad or something? They're right at the edge of being able to enter into this promised land, and yet they're still grumbling, they're still complaining against God's provision of life. They want to turn back. They want to no longer walk with God. And here was his response in Numbers chapter 14, verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. And so here we have it in John 6. God's historic people once again not believing in him in spite of all the signs they've seen, rejecting his provision for life, complaining, grumbling against him for not feeding their flesh in the way that they desired. It's history repeating, and our responsibility is to make sure that that history does not repeat itself in our own hearts. The Jewish leaders are grumbling, and that grumbling takes the form of questions. The first thing that they question is who Jesus is. 
So Jesus says that he came from heaven. He is the bread who came down from heaven. And these unbelievers challenged that. He didn't come from heaven. He came from Mary and Joseph. I know who his parents are. This is not a divine person. This is a human person. This is an ordinary person. And we need to really slow down and pay careful attention to something that Jesus says here. He is revealing why they are resisting him. In verse 44, verse 44, you are not able to receive my teaching because you've not been drawn by the Father. And notice in verse 65, look at it in your Bible, he doubles down on this again. No one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Our salvation relies upon God's supernatural initiative. This is consistent with what we've already heard in John's gospel. This is what we read in the prologue, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then later in chapter 3, when Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus, he tells Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So only those who are born again can see the kingdom of God, and you can only be born again by the will of God, and not the will of the flesh, not the will of man. And in verse 45, Jesus leans on an Old Testament passage that Kevin read for us in the call to worship text this morning. It's an Old Testament passage that these Jewish authorities would have been familiar with from Isaiah chapter 54. It was a promise about this future day of restoration when God's people wouldn't be a mixture of believers and unbelievers like his old covenant people were, Israel. No, his new covenant people would be different. They would all know God because they would all be taught by God himself. So those who belonged to this new covenant community would be his true disciples. Bearing all that in mind, let's focus carefully on the word that Jesus uses specifically in verse 44, draw. To be born again and to receive Jesus, you must be born again, according to his own words. And when you're born again by the Spirit, the Father draws you to faith in the Son, and the word behind our ESV translation of draw appears a few times in Scripture, and usually it's referring to like a physical action, a physical activity. So there could be a fish that are drawn in in a net. There could be someone who is dragged into court. There could be someone who is drawing a sword out of their sheath. Now, this is the physical use of this language, and it seems like Jesus is using it in a figurative sense here. This is not a physical action, but it is a picture of the spiritual reality. Those who are genuine believers come to the Son because the Father has drawn them by the Holy Spirit's inward power. They are led, they are driven towards belief in Him. Belief is compelled, but not against our will. It is a work of the Holy Spirit that makes the unwilling man willing to come 
to Christ in faith. It is a sweet and powerful compulsion. It's an efficacious persuasion, as one 17th century theologian put it. All that the Father gives to the Son will come to him in faith, and he will raise them up on the last day. He will lose none of them. Jesus is very clear all the way through. This is why Christians can have such blessed assurance. Because our salvation is the result of the Father's sovereign will, the Son's trustworthy words, and the Spirit's powerful work. Salvation belongs to the Lord from beginning to end. If it were not for God, we would still be grumbling in the desert. So that's what's happening in narrative form here in John 6, in this passage. These unbelieving Jews are refusing Jesus' divine identity. They are rejecting what he is claiming. And then in the second half of verse 51, he explains his divine mission. He says this, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And they reject that as well. Second, unbelievers dispute Jesus' substitutionary death. I'll read verses 52 to 59. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate, they died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So Jesus is using metaphorical language here. And so we just need to be clear on the content of what he is teaching. At the end of verse 51, he had just said that he is going to give his life as that flesh. He's going to give his life for the world. The bread he is offering then that brings eternal life is his own flesh. In other words, for us to have life, he would have to give his own life in our place. To eat his flesh, to drink his blood is to have faith in his sacrificial death in our place. Now, it should be clear that this is not an invitation to cannibalism. But that's how it landed on these hearers. They might have figured, well, maybe this is figurative language, but what does that figurative language mean? And so they're disputing amongst themselves. Just to be clear, once more, it's an invitation to faith. It's an invitation to faith. The one who believes in Jesus is the one who abides in him, and Jesus abides in him or her. He'll be raised up to everlasting life on the last day. But they're disputing amongst themselves. What does this mean? What could it mean for him to give us his flesh to eat? Well, Jesus is establishing substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement for all those who would believe. 
those who will believe in his victorious resurrection from death, his defeat of death, which is the greatest sign that could be given, they will not face their own everlasting death, but they will face everlasting life and freedom from the guilt of their sin that God himself provides for them. The idea that the Father laid our own suffering upon the Son that we deserved, the punishment that we deserved to pay for our sins, has always been a little bit contentious, uh, even from here. I guess we could say that Jesus' invitation to eat his flesh has always been hard to swallow. Sorry. I apologize. I should have crashed that out. It is rejected very often as cosmic child abuse. It's rejected as an unrighteous act of an oppressive God. It is rejected as something that makes God into a moral monster. How could he give Jesus our own suffering? That doesn't make sense. And those are all questions, misunderstandings of the cross. All of those questions misunderstand the cross and its intent and its purpose and its achievement completely. God's own clear teaching from Genesis in the beginning to Revelation in the end is this, that Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, that he is like that Passover lamb whose sacrificial life turned death away from those who ate its flesh and were covered by its blood. These two truths must stand together. Who Jesus is and what Jesus came to accomplish. And it makes sense then that this would be like the most grumbled and uh, disputed elements of doctrine throughout church history. Who is Jesus and why did he come? But here is the clear teaching. Jesus is God who himself atoned for sin. And these things must go together. You have to see that he is only able to atone for our sin because he is God. It is because the word has no beginning himself that he is able to give us life that never ends. Friends, the the word of the cross will always be folly to those who are perishing. It will be a stumbling block. It will be foolish. But to those who are called which is to say those whom the Father has given to the Son, this is the gospel. It is the sweetest message. It is the most comforting, the most satisfying words that you could ever chew on. Well, those are the two teachings of Jesus that are really hard to grasp, hard to accept here. But I wonder if you can think of other hard sayings of Jesus that are also rejected. Maybe the fact that he claims to be the exclusive path to God, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Maybe it's his call to self-denial, that in order to be a disciple of his, you have to lay down your own life and take up your cross and follow him. Maybe it's the call to love and to pray for your own enemies. Maybe it's the call that he gives to radical generosity 
Or maybe it's what he said, that only those whom the Father draws will come to the Son. In our day, some of those moral implications of Jesus' teachings hit different. Like his traditional view of marriage that he explains in Matthew 19. Or presenting the created order of heterosexuality as a gift to be received and not to be rejected. And maybe it's Scripture's overall teaching on the sanctity of human life. Or maybe it's the possibility that there could be any external authority outside of myself to which I am accountable, and that's actually a good thing. Or maybe it's just offensive that Jesus keeps using that word over and over again in here, true. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the true bread. My flesh, it is the true food. My blood, it is the true drink. Friends, I know that you know this. In our day, we are constantly exposed to the poisonous thinking that we are all entitled to our own truth. And that all of our truths can really coexist, and it's okay if they're antithetical to each other as long as I can still hold on to my truth. Uh, You might be able to think of other things that people probably find offensive about Jesus' teaching, but let's not think about only what other people find difficult about Jesus' teaching. Do you have any points of tension with the hard sayings of Jesus? Areas maybe where you're not quite seeing eye to eye. A quick follow-up question. Are you willing to be taught by God? Are you willing to let go of your truth for true truth? Or will you follow your deceitful heart back into Egypt? Lisa Gunger had a band that she was in that was very popular in like the 2010s. They had a lot of popular songs that were played in worship services. The band is called Gunger. She grew up uh, in a Christian context, was in a Christian band. Uh, she eventually deconstructed the way that she describes it, and she turned away. She walked away from the faith. She wrote a book about it in 2018. And this is the, the analogy that she gave to explain that process from her own perspective and what that was like. She said that her Christian faith is like a sweater, and these teachings of Jesus were like the threads that held it together. One thread of the sweater comes loose, and then you, you try to tuck it in. It gets kind of itchy. You decide you don't actually need it anymore, and so you pull it out. And over time, you pull out another and another until you find that all the yarn is gone and you've pulled apart the entire thing. Now, if we can continue with that analogy, in reality, there are particular threads that cannot be pulled out of that sweater without the whole thing unraveling. You cannot reject Jesus' divine identity and his divine mission without rejecting Jesus altogether. But once you establish his divine authority and then you receive his words as these eternal words of life, you will find that no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck you from his hand. So, of course, it is one thing to hear these unbelievers, these Jewish authorities who are grumbling against Jesus, disputing his claims, but it's another thing for his own disciples to do it as well. And here is where God's word is pressing in on us, friends. We've all gathered under the banner of Christ this morning. 
for one reason or another, even if you're here because your parents have made you, or if you're tuning in online, or you're listening through a podcast later, maybe you're here because you want to fit in with the right crowd, or because you're convinced that Christ alone genuinely has the words of life, we are all, you and I, following Jesus to some degree, because here we are. We need to lay aside these questions of Jesus and listen to Jesus' own question of us for a moment. Listen to the question that Jesus asks us third. Will I take offense or take comfort in Jesus' hard teaching? Beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. You can listen to it. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus knew in himself what was in his disciples' hearts, our text says. He is not fooled. He knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and he picked up on their grumbling. Even if it wasn't an outward grumbling, he knew that they were grumbling internally. Some of those who were following him were listening to his teaching, and they are very genuinely offended by his message. They did not believe his mission began in humility that he descended from heaven. And so how would they possibly believe that his mission is going to be accomplished in victory when he ascends back to heaven? Well, they don't have the spiritual ability to receive this teaching. All they have is the carnal ability to receive his material gifts. This isn't what they signed up for. They wanted an earthly king, not a heavenly messiah. And so they turned back. They no longer walked with him. Like those Israelites of old, they wanted to go back to Egypt. This is getting hard. I'm out. And so Jesus turns to his 12 disciples, his close disciples, those whom he had chosen. And even within these closest disciples, we see two responses. There is a positive verbal response from Peter. And there is a negative, nonverbal response from Judas. Verse 67, look at it. Jesus asked them, 
Do you want to go away as well? Peter answered, always the first to respond. Peter, of course. We have believed. We have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Really, it doesn't even matter if we are offended. It doesn't matter. Where else could we even go? To whom else could we turn? You have the words of eternal life. It doesn't matter if your teaching is hard. It's true. And then maybe Jesus waits a beat to see if anybody else has a comment, a question, issue, concern. But Judas didn't need to verbalize his discontent. Jesus knew what was in his heart. He knew that he was a traitor. He knew that Jesus' mind was set on earthly things, that his carnal desires had drawn him away. We're going to learn later in John's gospel that Judas is a thief, that he was very much concerned about getting into the disciples' money bag and taking money for himself. And of course, we know that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And nearly every time Judas' name is mentioned in John's gospel, it's always in the same breath as traitor or betrayal. He gave lip service. He's following. He's one of the 12. But he didn't have any actual true affection for the God who had loved the world by sending his only begotten son into it. Judas was offended at something in Jesus' message, whether it was his suffering or his shame or his death or his cross. And so he secretly set out in his own heart not just to walk away from Jesus, but to put Christ to death, eventually betraying him even with a kiss. And this was because his mind was set on the flesh and not on the spirit. Paul picks up on this in chapter 8 of Romans, which says this, verses 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There are two ways to ask questions of Jesus. There is a way with a mind set on the spirit, and there is a way with the mind set on the flesh. There is faith seeking understanding, and there is unbelief seeking an escape. What I love about John's gospel in studying through it is just how simple it is. It is so black and white. There is death, there is life, there's from above, there's from below. There is light, there is dark. It is so simple, but it is so profound. Some of the people that we have read about are incredibly complex characters who will develop over time as we read through John's gospel. There's a whole spectrum of responses to Jesus. Ultimately, we know that there are those who receive him in faith and those who reject him altogether. But the responses look different. Some instantly embrace Jesus, like the woman at the well. There are others that are more gradual, like we'll see, like Nicodemus. Some are just more kind of ambiguous. 
and some are inconsistent. And we can take Peter himself as an example. He looks like he is all in until later, of course, when he distances himself from Jesus in order to save his own flesh and blood. Of course, then only to weep with godly sorrow, to repent, to return to his first love. And of course, we know that he ends his life firmly at Jesus's side. John's gospel helps us engage with the difficulty of tracing our own stories. It's interesting that John never uses the noun form of belief or faith. John always chooses to use a verb in its place. Faith is always an active thing. Sometimes well-meaning folks can try to give us an assurance of our faith by telling us, well, just look back to that first profession of faith. Maybe write it down on the inside cover of your Bible. But friends, we cannot rest our assurance on belief that is a thing that happened once upon a time. The question that Jesus confronts us with this morning is this. Are you, in this moment, a true disciple? Not have you believed yesterday or will you believe tomorrow, but are you chewing on your daily bread? Use this text to evaluate your heart, your spirit, your mind. Observe from this text that these false disciples are offended by Jesus' hard words. They fail to realize and to recognize that his words are spirit-inspired, that they are life-giving. They refused to come to Jesus in faith. They abandoned his pursuit. And by contrast, the true disciples choose to stay with Jesus They are drawn in by his words that lead to eternal life. They recognize that he is the Messiah. They believe in him. And they realize that there is a legitimate danger of denying the master that bought them. Here's a key takeaway for us. True believers continually savor their salvation. If you want to ask this question that Peter gives at the end of this section, where else can I go? You can ask that question because you are actually looking for an escape. Where else can I go? And you won't have to look long, friends, to find someone who will gladly lead you back into Egypt, who will lead you back under the burden of slavery and back into the guilt of your sin. Don't harden your heart. Continue in faith marvel at the gospel, wonder at the gift of life, take and eat, believe. Thanks be to God who grants us life by his spirit and calls us to his son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.